You're listening to the American Soccer Analysis Show. Dude, you're, you're the Tommy McNamara of podcasting. It's great. Thank you. Wait, what? With your hosts, Ian Lamberson. If you say one more bad thing about Mike Grella, I'm going to cut you. And Harrison Crow. Patrick Mullins is what happens when you least expect it. From the kickoff to the shootout, we're amped up, we're ramped up. For a breakaway from a set play, it's a give and go. Welcome to American Soccer Analysis Podcast. I'm your host, Harrison Crow. Ian is on assignment and will return. However, in his stead, I am joined by two amazing individuals. First, the only full-time podcaster who is not on Extra Time Radio, Jamin Moore. Sir, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, from a deep underground laboratory somewhere in Seattle, Matthias Kulwatz, sir, uh, we finally have you back on. You, you said beforehand uh, that we allowed you on. I don't feel that's fair. Uh, you've just been MIA, locked in a dungeon, trying to fix, uh, especially in the last two years, you and Tyler have been trying to fix everything that is wrong with uh, our back end. Well, I, I think after this podcast, you're going to want me to stay in the dungeon, but we'll see. <laughs> not, only that, not only that, I feel like my my role in American Soccer Analysis is to try to find everything wrong with Maddie's models, point it out to him wait three days for him to respond back. And, uh, you know, and then he uh, just tells me why I'm wrong. So I think that's why I'm here. <laughs> well, I, I actually think that's Matthias's like role in general of ASA is just to tell people, Hey, um, actually that's completely wrong. I don't have the next like 40 hours to show you why it's wrong. Just go and fix it. Uh, and then he spends a weekend abandoning his children, fixing whatever thing we'd said to fix and that that's just kind of been his role uh, since this really since the start. That's not completely true. I might just tell you it's wrong because it's easier than fixing it. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, we have a special podcast for, for you all uh, listening in. Obviously, we've been MIA for the last uh, few months. Lots going on in personal lives. Lots going on. Uh, excuses galore. All of those things. We hope to have more content going forward in the future. However, that's TBD, uh, which is new. Um, this podcast is really focused upon uh, goals added, or uh, some people have referred to it as G plus. I think. Uh, I do you have a preference, Matthias, on, on, on how you? What do you call it? I think when I type it, it makes sense to type G plus, but saying it sounds weird. I say goals added. <laughs> <laughs> so is it, so it's both both is the answer it's neither all right all right uh well so we got a bunch of questions um let's start up at the very top jason poon our asa our asa alum and a guy that was with us from the very start sent a, in a question can you eli5 i don't know what that is do you guys know what eli5 is i think we both looked that no. up right I had to Google it. 
Yeah, I, had, I totally had to Google it, and I shared that with the, with the internet on the Twitters. ELA five explained like I'm five. Uh, oh. G plus for the folks that don't have a master's in mathematics. He's just asking for a friend. Yeah, I love the question. So G plus is this the the what the two minute version, the five minute version? Well, yeah, yeah. How, however, however long it takes to explain it. So. I think there's one really key thing to appreciate about about a metric like goals added, and that's that there's no there's not goals added is not an observed thing, right? Like when you when you try to make an x goals model, you observe the shot either going in or going out. There's an actual outcome, and so you can kind of calibrate your model toward that outcome, whether it's a goal or not, and so. You know, the sum of all your expected goals will equal the sum of all the regular goals. And that's it's magic. It's machine learning magic. And it's very straightforward. There's not like when a player makes a pass, there's not like some inherent value ascribed to that pass from the get-go that we try to predict. We actually, we're creating that value. Okay, so so let's take a step back. What are we? What is goals like? What what is this harebrained scheme? I know uh, John Mueller went on to a uh, uh, podcast uh, last year, tried to explain it, and I say try. He did a, actually he did a really good job uh, on MLS Assist. Um, fantastic show. You guys all probably listen to it and don't listen to us because we don't make anything. Um, Joe Lowry, great guy. Let's take a step back. Let's explain what are we tr- what what are we trying to accomplish with goals added. Well, yeah, so to build off of, I'll get there. Yeah, build off of what I was just saying, we're, we, we can't just predict some metric called goals added or some observation or thing that happens on the field called goals added because nothing happens on the field called goals added. So what we're really trying to do is we're trying to create a value metric, something that tells us how valuable the play was in the units of goals. So that at the end of the game, you add up all the positive and negative things a player does. And if it's plus 0.5, that means the player did things to help his team that on average would contribute to about half a goal. You know, half a goal, you know, gained of value, if you will. So I guess at the very, very high level, we're trying to ascribe value to every action on the pitch. So def- that's defensive actions. It did, what it, these are these are actions that are actually annotated through uh, Opta data, Opta tracking. Uh, just to kind of like put it to what people that are listening into the podcast might be familiar with, right? So Opta does a lot of the tracking and on the ball actions. We can't necessarily derive value from off ball actions, correct? Right, exactly. So you think about on-ball actions, you're thinking about, of course, passes make up the majority of all on-ball actions, but shots, uh, dribble attempts, um, unobstructed carries up the field, um, tackles, interceptions, fouls. Laundry uh, list. <laughs> yeah, right. Everything that where, where the ball is located on the field, every major event that happens on that ball with the offensive and defensive players involved is recorded. But with the defensive players off the ball and the offensive players off the ball, we have the model right now has no insight into what they're doing and where they are. All right. So that kind of at least level sets us a little bit, I think with where we're at with goals added and what we're trying to achieve, right? A value that's derived and put on a scale of goals. Right. Um, Matt Doyle has a two part question from MLS soccer.com. 
what is the process like for improving the metric? Where do you guys feel it falls short? And we were just discussing beforehand, you've upgraded, you've made some changes. Tyler's made some changes to this. And we haven't necessarily advertised those changes probably like we should have. Uh, but can you talk about what that process has been like? And, you know, what are some of the things that you feel? Um, and, Jamin, I, I would love your input, too. Uh, what are your some of your opinions on where this falls short? I think we've got the right guy on the call here to start this conversation um, because a lot of Jamin's work on where goals come from spurred one of our recent processes for improving the metrics. So, Jamin, can you give us some background on where goals came from and what are some of the things you found about that that then contributed some of the changes that we made in the model? Yeah, no, I, I, I appreciate that. And, and uh, you know, I, I, one of the things that I think people you know, would be interested in is, is how do we even come up with these ideas? How do we work together and do these things? And, and you know, uh, goals added was something that I was, you know, you know, kind of peripherally involved in from the very beginning. And I saw the direction that you guys were going in, but I also had my own thoughts as to how I wanted to approach uh, measuring goals. And I felt that there was a lot left on the table that we hadn't done yet with event data. And Within that, what uh, some work that I had done with Carl Carpenter, uh, and uh, we had started actually uh, back when he was at the University of Virginia, and we were looking at some of the the uh, UVA data there, and noticed some some patterns that I thought were really interesting, and I I mentioned it to him, and he started talking about it uh, online, and it was it was getting a lot of interest, and uh, I'm like, okay, let's let's start to look at this with MLS data as well that we have, you know, with American Soccer Analysis, and. Uh, you started to see that, you know, there were these kind of distinctive patterns that happened in every single league, at least of the data that we had available to us. And across all those leagues, certain patterns uh, emerged about uh, 12 different types of goals um, that uh, that we noticed. We, we categorized those goals into five different categories. And within that, we noticed that certain shot types had much higher value than other shot types, but that many teams uh, would shoot the low value shot types in high volumes and very low volume with the high value shot types. That's uh, something that we're still, you know, kind of rolling out and revealing. We've done about uh, 10 articles now. And, uh, you know, one of the things that we've really focused uh, so much of our time on so far is on the, that 40% of goals come from five different types of progressive passes, through balls, cutbacks, crosses, uh, Long balls uh, usually, uh, you know, hit into uh, the box uh, from uh, longer distances and then kind of a, uh, a hybrid between a, one of those types of long balls and a cross called a progressive uh, ball, which is I think of it more of like a, a more vertical or diagonal uh, cross in some ways. And uh, between those five types, 40 percent of the goals in any league just about in the world including lower level US leagues and women's leagues that we've looked at, uh, it's, it's very consistent uh, where these goals come from. And that's why the project is called that. And uh, so it's been, it's been really interesting. We think we got a lot more to do there. And uh, you know, I was reading uh, your update, Matthias, more recently, and even noticed that you had mentioned that you had utilized some of it. I'm actually kind of interested in, in how you incorporated some of that into the model. 
Yeah, I mean, one of your main points in there, and I've read all those articles, that really caught my attention was kind of like, where does the past come from, right? You mentioned 40% of goals come from different progressive past types. And so what I realized when I looked at our models is we weren't, when we were looking at, for instance, where the shot was taking place, where the value was being created in the possession, we weren't necessarily looking at how the ball explicitly got there. So some of the things we were measuring was how quickly was the ball moving up the field, whether the ball came from a shot or a cross, I should say, or a through ball, and whether it was, um, you know, how many plays after a, maybe a free kick or a corner kick was it to try to get some idea of the flow of play and the defensive concentration and things like that. But we weren't specifically looking at like, was it a cutback? Was it a, a horizontal cross versus a 45 degree cross, kind of one of those progressive crosses like Jamin was talking about. And so actually from reading those articles and realizing that so much value is differentiated by where the ball more specifically came from, um, we did something that in, in machine learning and data science is often called feature engineering, which is just a fancy way of saying we, we made some new ways to describe where the ball came from. And so mathematically, what we do now is we look at essentially the location on the field where the pass came from, the, the, if there was a key pass on the shot, the location on the field where the pass came from, essentially how far the ball traveled to get to the shooter, and at what angle did it travel to get there. And those two pieces of information can tell the machine learning algorithm, this pass came backwards at a 45 degree angle, this pass came sideways, uh, a long cross, this pass was a short cross on the ground. Things like all, all those different types of ways the ball can arrive at the shooter's feet are now um, parameterized, if you will, into the models to figure out just how valuable the shot was and thus just how valuable the possession was. One of the things, Maddie, we, we, I remember we were really kind of talking a lot about at the time that we created the initial model. And I'm interested if, if you've found any, any way to... Uh, to uh, address this area is really how do we factor in the effects of incomplete passes? Uh, one of the things that we don't really know is necessarily where the ball intended to go. We don't have the endpoint of where the pass would have been had it not been, let's say, intercepted by another player. Um, or sometimes, you know, a player might slide into a ball and knock it out of bounds, right? And so sometimes trying to evaluate. Uh, what intent was is one of the hardest things to even try to do uh, in, a, in, uh, in data, event data, particularly from a soccer match, because we don't know where all the other players on the pitch were. Um, how have you kind of tried to meet that particular challenge of these kind of incomplete events or, you know, I guess, I guess in event data, we would say, you know, they're outcome zeros. They are uh, unsuccessful attempts at different things. And how, how much does that affect the way that the models work? Yeah, no, this is a great question. I think the extent to which they affect the model depends on how you want to use the model. So if you only want to use the model for evaluating what happened and how valuable that was, I think what we do does a pretty good job of doing that for incomplete passes because it identifies a few things. It identifies what was the opportunity cost that the team gave up by having the ball wherever they did when they attempted the pass compared to what value does the other team now have who just intercepted that pass or is now making a throw in off that pass or, or, or whatever. And so we're, we are kind of, I think, quite directly measuring that, that delta in value. 
So if a team, for instance, has the ball on top of the box, you know, high value opportunity, and then you know someone tries to make a little a uh, little through ball that just goes through everyone out of bounds for a goal kick. Well, we say the opportunity cost they gave up was you know five percent chances of that possession scoring or ten percent chances of that possession scoring, and now the other team has the ball in a pretty neutral you know position. They're kicking a goal kick, so we can measure the value of that incomplete pass by looking at the gap there between what the value of the possession was for the team that had the ball versus the value of the possession for the team that the new team that now has the ball. Um, but now if you want to use the model instead for understanding, like you said, a content understanding um, what options the player had, what they were trying to go for and whether or not it was a good cost benefit analysis decision to even attempt that pass. Now that's a lot harder to do because we don't know where that pass was going to go. And if the player who could have received that pass, if it was a good one um, would have, you know, been, on goal, you know, or would have just been sort of behind still, still ahead of, you know, with the whole defense behind the ball and everything. So, um, so you know, oh, keep going. Okay. I was going to say, so yeah, intent, um, in terms of cost benefit analysis of the decision, I think we can't really do that without tracking data, but in terms of actually valuing what happened, I think we can. Well, so I was just going to say that kind of leads into Matt Doyle's second part of his question is where do you desperately want more data? And you kind of talk about tracking data, uh, is tracking data the end all be all? Uh, we've kind of had a, a glimpse behind the behind the mirror on some of that stuff. Uh, where else is there other information that you see being beneficial to adding to uh, goals added? I think tracking data is the obvious one, but I think maybe what's not so obvious is how hard it is to work with, and you know it's been around for a while, but there's not a ton of really like sophisticated models out there that are using it in all the ways that we talk about, all the ways we dream about on podcasts like this. So like, can I, to give you an example in that decision, there is no that, other podcast like this, sir. <laughs> <laughs> well, in terms of like cost benefit analysis, decision-making, think about what you'd have to do to figure out whether or not the attempt was a was a smart play by the player trying to make maybe a really risky through ball. You know, first you have to understand the probability of completing the pass, and we do have the X pass model, and that is very helpful here. But then you also have to understand who was supposed to receive that ball. So you'd have to you know algorithmically work out based on the errant pass where was this ball probably going, and that can be hard to do. Then you have to figure out if that player had received it. In the time it took him to receive it, where would the defenders have then settled in? Because there's a, a half second to a second in there where the player needs to receive and turn or, or whatever it happens to be. So it's not just this magical bullet that's like, we have tracking data. Now we know how valuable it would have been if he completed the pass. Like There's a lot of assumptions you have to make in there. Um, it's, it's not a small problem. And so if you're wondering, like, why isn't there a... a ton of really good stuff out there on the tracking data that everyone's talking about. Well, cause it's hard. <laughs> it's hard to figure out how to value even just something like that. Like how valuable would the pass have been had it been completed? Also very, very expensive to store somewhere. Yeah. Because if you think in terms of uh, the data that's available, you get an event every couple seconds or so, but tracking data comes in at multiple frames per second and multiply that by the 22 players on the field plus the ball 20, 23 it actually starts to become a, a big data problem. And a lot of clubs just aren't set up uh, these days yet 
with the infrastructure to be able to support uh, that type of uh, the infrastructure just to be able to hold the data, much less have the right staff and everything to be able to, to you know, make sense of, of that type of thing. Event data still is the gold standard in terms of, you know, how clubs use data today for that reason. It, it, you get to very similar answers a lot faster and the delta of what you don't know is probably not as useful as what you can actually get. You know, it's kind of the 80-20 rule. Um, the 80% that you want to know, you can probably get to with event data. The 20% is probably less important. To begin with, there might be some things you're missing with that, but probably you'd be better off to query it and selectively get what you want from it rather than build large complicated models that factor in every single type of nuance and, and would be running all the time just to be able to give you answers. Is that a, a fair it's assessment? <laughs> no, I totally, I, I totally agree. I think, I think there's probably enough money out there in some leagues and it's, it's been done. So clearly there is to do that. Right. But like you said, you put, you can put in 50% of the effort to get 80% of the outcome. The next 50% of your effort gives you the last 20%. Right. And it's incrementally increased effort for decreased return. I think as you get to more and more nooks and crannies of, of tracking data. Well, there's a lot you can do out there with tracking data, but again, I think just the amount of work it takes to get there is you know, three or four times what we did to create goals added with just event data. I think the, the main thing that we get to, and I always hit you guys up with, uh, with the same type of question, is why doesn't G Plus like a particular player? Um, and maybe partially some of that can be explained with blind spots that are not yet in the model um, that might still be you know, quote unquote, low hanging fruit from event data that might be able to at some point make its way into the model. Do you have a, a sense at this point for what those may be? Or do you think there are just things that are going to be incredibly difficult to be able to, to answer, you know, about soccer? Because we're probably going to want to ask, you know, about some of these players and, and get some answers. I, I think like a lot of people just want to know that type of thing. But why does it seem to hate MLS MVPs, for example? <laughs> Uh, I mean, that might just be a segue into a bigger conversation about why we get Paris and probably has a few names in his back pocket, why certain players aren't don't look good by G plus, but, but are probably MVP front runners because of more typical goal outputs. Yeah. Gustavo Bo, man, like, come on. That's, that's the first name that jumps out. Right. And that's one I can talk about him a little more specifically. I dug into some of his numbers. I haven't looked at all the players in depth so I can speak a little more generally about, you know, why this might happen. But for Bo it's, you know, what's interesting is his raw goals added before we make any sort of positional adjustments. If we just treat all the players as being some uniposition player, um, Bo, is like maybe 30th in the league, which is quite good, right? And we've got 600 players that have recorded something. So to be 30th is, is quite good. You know, of course, 11 start for 27 teams or whatever. So you're talking about 300 players starting every week. Yeah, again, 30th is good. And then if you look at his kind of above average metrics, he falls to somewhere right in the middle of all those starters, like 180. He's roughly average or slightly below average, something like that. So, so first of all, you can't tell me that Gustavo Bo is good. Uh, that shatters my universe. And I'm upset with you now. Uh, second off, uh, I think this is really good. Uh, this was not in the, our questions, and it was something that was on my mind that I think that should be answered. If someone is in the negative, that means they're a terrible, bad player and that they should be traded and deleted from MLS 
for all time, correct? If they they have a negative goals added. Is it Bo or Bow, by the way? I thought it was Gustavo Bo. Am I saying it wrong? I'll go with Bo. I think for the first time, Harrison has pronounced this correctly. So. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I mean, I, I have take my moments, example, sir. Bo. I first have my moments. I'll answer your question and kind of finish up my other thought. Um, negative, I mean, zero is not bad, right? When we're talking about above average, um, average is basically the sixth or seventh best starter on maybe fifth, sixth, seventh best starter on a typical team, right? So you're talking about a player who's starting and is also not the worst starter, right? That's a pretty select group, right? Um, you're talking about, say, take the top five or six starters on every team, and that's a group of of what about a hundred some players? Like that's a group of good players. So um, if you're average in goals added above average, if you're zero, basically, if you're average, that's not bad. So I'll kind of just let that sink in. Like it's, it, we're not, we're not saying he's terrible, but why might we be seeing a big difference between his rank before the positional adjustment versus after we, I mentioned he's like 30th or 29th or something um, when you don't adjust for position. And he falls to 150th or 80th or whatever when you do adjust right. for position. Well, he's he plays a position where um, he has a lot of access to high value opportunities. I'm talking specifically about receptions. Um, receptions are a very kind of high value opportunity, and and we noticed when we were looking at the first iteration of goals added, we said, "Wow, the way that we're allocating receptions about wow, these these forward types and, and winger types." Um, and maybe attack, even some attacking midfielders, these guys and gals, they get a lot of reception value. Um, not to say they're not working for it, but they have access to just a lot of value because they're close to the goal. And so because we we don't have you know tracking data or other ways to control for what makes these receptions hard or easy or what have you, we used positional adjustments to just kind of help control for each position's access to value, if you and so what happens with Bo is, is that at his positions, the positions he plays, and I forgot exactly how it weights, but at the, at the different positions he typically lines up at, a lot of those players get a lot of receiving value. And that means that to, to be average at receiving value, you have to get a lot per minute, basically, or per 90 minutes or however, whatever, however you want to, to uh, scale it by time. You have to be able to act, get, to get a lot of that value because those positions get a lot of receiving value per minute. And so I think maybe there's probably the answer somewhere in the middle. It usually is, right? Bo is probably better than the 180 best, best player that goals added above average says he is. But he he might not be the MVP that his expected assists and assists probably and expected not. goals and goals say that he should be. He's pro- it's probably somewhere in between, right? And I think maybe what, as fans, we can learn is – is that um, you know goals are such a function and assists for that matter are such a function of opportunity, and if we don't take a minute to control for that opportunity, we're going to be giving the MVP to the top five percent of goal scorers every year, like we always have been. But if we understand that different players have access to different opportunities, we can start to better control for who's actually performing above expectation, and not just control who's performing above expectations, you're talking about also how many opportunities someone gets there 
correct? You're controlling for the average amount because someone with high possession that's consistently getting the ball and holding the ball in that final third is going to generate more of those opportunities. So yeah, I think you brought can, up a great point. You're talking about the numbers, correct? Um, and maybe I use some of this language too. Controlling for the actual discrete opportunities, like literally every time they touch the ball, touches, we'll say. You can control for touches or you can control for time. And we've opted to control for time um, and not touches. So if a player is simply a bigger part of, of his or her team's offense, so they get more touches in the final third, they have access to more opportunities to play through balls or receive the ball in dangerous locations, so on and so forth, they're going to get more value because they're doing more things per unit time. And I think one of the reasons we settled on that is, especially with receiving value, if you think about what a player has to do to get receiving value, they have to put a lot of work in off the ball. We can't measure that work directly off the ball because we're not using tracking data, right? But what we can do is we can say, well, the typical player works their ass off to get, you know, X touches in the box worth however many, you know, goals added um, per 90 minutes. And then using that as our baseline, we can say, are you getting in that position more or are you getting that position less? Um, and so we've done it, we've kind of scaled that average on a per unit time. Now you can see how that might hurt certain players um, depending on uh, sort of how much they make out of each opportunity. And I think as fans, we might in our heads be thinking, how much, what does Bo do with every time he touches the ball? What does he do with his opportunities, you know, measured by touches? Whereas all of a sudden we're bringing in the baseline of measured by time. And those two things might not be on the same page. And so not to say that what we do is right, but it can miss players who maybe have high leverage per touch, but low leverage per minute, if that makes sense. So everything that I know about data science, you've pretty much taught me, uh, Matthias. So. Uh, first off, thank thank you for <laughs> for your teaching. But uh, secondly, uh, one of the things I, I think this brings to mind for me, as you know, somebody who does get into modeling a little bit, um, is you know the data that we have accessible for a particular player. So can sample size really kind of affect these types of numbers? If one particular player is high usage and they get a a higher percentage of their team's touches and another player gets a lower percentage of their team's touches, but maybe they're more valuable touches on average. How can that type of thing affect a model? I know we've talked about shots before, like it takes 5,000 shots even to have an expected goals model. It takes 10,000 to have a halfway decent one, another probably 25,000 to have a good one. So in the, when you're talking about things like, you know, this, this kind of time and touches dynamic and opportunities and things like that, how fair is it to look at, you know, maybe a thousand, two thousand, even three thousand actions for a player and be able to make a determination of, of player value if it takes so many more shots even to have a good expected goals model? I love this question uh, because I think maybe at its core, the question is about what did we see happen versus what do we expect? How much of, we, of that do we expect to translate forward? So like you said, a player who only makes, you know, in a game, maybe 50 or 100 touches at most, there's a ton of variability around what can happen with those touches. Just like a player who only takes, say, three shots a game, there's a ton of variability. The player can score a hat trick and the player can score zero. Both of those are very reasonable outcomes for a player who gets three shots off, right? And so, you know, at small sample sizes, definitely, um, we all kind of 
probably listen to this podcast, you have in the back of your head, like sample size, sample size, sample size. Like how much do I read into the G plus leaders after four games? Right. Um, and so my question always becomes, I love the question then that comes out of that, which is what is based on these four games and the numbers we have, how much of this performance is random or sort of un- okay, instead of random, we'll call it unpredictable versus how much of it is sort of true talent, stable, and a stick around. And you can do, you know, kind of prediction models to suss some of that out. And I, this is something that I, we were actually just chatting about in the aforementioned Slack channels where all good ideas come from. Uh, but we were chatting about essentially, have we done kind of like a year-to-year, game-to-game kind of goals added correlation? Specifically, we're talking about keepers, but I think we can do the same, you know, for any player. And I think that really divides out your question, Jamin, really into two. What did we see happen? Okay, the player was worth, you know, four goals last season or was worth a full goal in one game, which would be pretty amazing. You know, what did we see happen? But how much of that was um, outperformance or underperformance of a certain baseline? And what is this player's baseline going forward? So I think of those as two separate questions and kind of approach them differently. I think what goals added is really meant to do is it's meant to explain what happened and, and measure what happened. It just so happens that it, it is a fairly predictive metric relative to others, but it's not inherently a predictive metric by itself. When the, the, the top player in the league of, in goals added is very unlikely to reproduce their season the next year. In fact, I think if we were to do a study where we took the top, say, 10 goals added from every year and then looked at the delta for those 10 players in the next year, we'd see a pretty big negative. There'd be a pretty strong regression to the mean there. So suggesting that this what happened is not always a true talent level or a prediction of what will happen exactly. So if you're an MLS club and and you're a data analyst and you're access, accessing this information on the American Soccer Analysis website and you go to the interactive tables and you're looking at G+, and you want to see how can this inform me about things that I may not see about a player in my other analysis, how do you think like the role of, of goals added can be in helping a club evaluate players if there is a lot of this noise and if there is, you know, maybe we're not seeing a true value and maybe there's going to be a regression to the mean. Like if you were advising a club who might be listening to this podcast in just some way, obviously they're not paying money for this advice here, but, you know, what, what would you what would you tell them about this particular metric and how it might be able to augment other things that they're, that they're looking at about a player? Yeah. Yeah. So what I would do is I'd use a predictive model to suss out which of the things did they do translate into, into value ahead of time. So let's think about what's, what's going to drive this, right? We've broken out goals added into a number of different categories, passing, shooting, receiving, um, interrupting fouling and I'm, I'm missing one key one I know. Um, but what you can do is you can build a model that says, okay, what did a player do last season in each of these six categories? How old are they? What position did they play? Look at some other kind of historical information and then use a model to kind of regress all of that information on what they produce the next year. Right. So it's, it's a predictive model because you're taking information from time point, you know, 2019 and you're predicting 2020, you're taking it from 2015 and you're predicting 2016. And what you can do is you can actually through like a, with a GLM with, you know, 
common set of models with machine learning algorithms, you can figure out what were the biggest components or drivers of their future value. And so that's the kind of model that I've worked on in the background. Some hoping to publish some stuff maybe this year, maybe the off season on how do we use the information we have from goals added and other things like age and position and other information we have to predict how the player will perform next year. Then when we aggregate all those players' predictions together, is that a good prediction of how a team will perform next year? Because if that's true, then what we can do is we can mix and match players as they're traded in the offseason, and uh, and we can forecast new teams that have never played together before in, in their exact, you know, those 11, 11 players. I don't know, Harrison, was there something you wanted to jump on? Yeah, so uh, so this kind of leads into one of the questions that Ben Bellman actually asked, and, and I'll kind of uh, encapsulate uh, parts of it because we've already talked a lot about uh, them. But if you've got two different midfielders that both excel and both have, uh, well, let's say you just have one midfielder, right, and you can tell what he's probably going to excel at next year and what his value probably is going to hold steady at, can you look at, okay, what is he not good at and try to ascertain what in the marketplace do I need to go and ascertain and offset? Yeah. I'll, can G plus yeah, help the first identify time those things? about this question, but I love it. I, I had two ideas right when you were talking off, off the bat. One was maybe identifying players that are playing the wrong positions where G plus, for instance, let's say we do this predictive analysis I just talked about and we find that the, you know, there's an interaction where a, a player who plays, um, say a defensive midfielder one season with really good passing metrics, but maybe poor elsewhere, uh, trans like your transfers into a different midfield position and excels a lot in other areas of the game too. For example, I'm thinking of example like that, where you can use this to identify players who may be playing out of position or players who are in the exact right position, things like that. Um, you know, a, a scout who watches the games can probably tell you, I watch these guys, I know if they're in the right position or not. And and those trained eyes are very valuable for sure. But what about, you know, Chilean Division D, where you can't go scout every game and you can't go watch every game. And, and, and you know, if you have data from that and you can do some triage work and you can go identify, you know, players who are going to be undervalued maybe because they're out of position and you can figure out they're out of position because you've seen this player type do really well when they move to a new position, for example. Or maybe could you, could you translate position for system? Definitely possible, right? And this is going to another level where now you use the formation or some sort of details um, about the system or formation that the team is using interacted with what position the player is playing and how they performed in the different G plus categories. And if all that's part of your machine learning algorithm, you can then essentially query the machine learning algorithm at the end and say, what drove good predictions in the future? And if it's a certain player moving from this formation to that formation or this position to that position within a formation, um, that could help answer that question on a global level. And now you can use that to kind of triage your scouting, right? Because now you say, okay, I can't watch every single game in the, the sub leagues of all these different countries to find the, the diamond in the rough, but I can take the top, 1% of all players in these leagues around the world who are doing this thing, this thing that I know is undervalued, right? And they're, they're in the wrong position. They're being undervalued. And then I can just go scout them with my eyes, add the eyes to the data, 
and it's a it's a more efficient means of analysis when you combine the two. Right. So uh, here, uh, taking the global game and put kind of placing it aside because we live in a very MLS driven world. <laughs> that's that's the fishbowl that we live in. Very small. Uh, well, fishbowl implies people are watching us, though, right? <laughs> I don't. I don't know if anybody necessarily watches a, a, a fishbowl, though. I mean, you walk past it every once in a while, but uh, that's that is a conversation for a different time. <laughs> so you look at Chicago Fire, who are constantly uh, trading and running off and uh, devaluing young assets. Uh, most probably, predictably, is Matt Polster. Uh, who's, you know, over in New England succeeding uh, after, you know, kind of his spell away from Chicago. Is there a way that we can look through goals added now and we can kind of take those different categories and say, okay, player A, Matt Polster in this case, showed a lot of initiative in this category. Are do people just not have access to the back in database to start finding out and deciphering for themselves? Or can they look at these individual categories and say, well, this category shows, you know, that he's really good at it or he's really bad at it, but maybe with some improvement, you know, he's 22 or maybe, you know, he's already showing to be really good in this category at 23. Uh, is that something that people can do right now? Or is that something that they should probably be looking at the whole number versus, the individual categories? As you know, Harrison, um, I don't actually know any of these players. I'm sorry, buddy. <laughs> let's reminisce for a minute about baseball, a time when Harrison and I met when we were writing and talking about the Mariners. Because the Mariners are a great example too. Just a ton of young talent that sucked on the Mariners and is doing really well. Now, like Mike Zunino for the Rays, Justin Smoke a few years ago for the Jays. Sure. Um, we just watched this happen time and time again. So why they all, why, it, it was a meme, right? It was a meme on a couple different forums. Why do they always get better? Yeah, right? trade for Mariners players, right? <laughs> um, but like in, in general, right? Your question is is one that I think, for instance, I never want to argue that that these stats and goals added and even a better version of goals added tracking data is ever going to replace you know people watching the game. And, and interpreting information. You know, I, I think I mentioned before, I tried to stress anyway, that I think the one of the best ways to use analytics is to triage your work, right? Be more efficient with whom you're scouting and how you're scouting. Second guess your eyes a little bit with what the numbers are saying so you can think more open-mindedly and broadly about what you're looking at. So with that in mind, what a model might say, one of these predictive models using prior G plus to predict future G plus, what it might say is that you know young players who who do who do well in G plus in one category but not another, maybe that combination forecasts the potential for greatness. You know, some probability of greatness in the future. Whereas maybe a different combination, like uh, certain skills maybe are learned younger, whereas other skills develop older. And I think a predictive model with age and all these all these kind of components of G plus could really help to kind of figure out, again, triage, which 20-year-olds, which 18-year-olds have a higher probability of making it big and, and really being a high value over salary kind of player. One of the things I think that we touched on, and uh, I, there's a, a question here from uh, 
uh, Kristen Hendage, I think we we hit on it a little bit with the uh, the kind of the misinterceptions and things like that. But you know, there's a lot of randomness in soccer, and you touched on that a bit before too. Like, how do we separate out the randomness or the um, the luck factor, so to speak, from something that is is actual skill? But when it comes to like in-game things, sometimes you know there's there's a bit of luck involved. Sometimes the defender uh, misses a ball and uh, and, a, and the goal results, or a keeper makes a mistake and and a goal results. One of the things that does seem like it happens a bit is, is certain actions can really kind of outweigh over even over the course of several games or a season because they have such high positive or high negative values it can kind of skew what that player average in some ways, you know, may look like, or a particular team performance um, can, can sit with them for a long time because, you know, Hey, uh, they just lost, uh, you know, RSL just lost six, one to, to Portland. How much of, of that is like who RSL really is and how much of that is who Portland really is. And how much does that one result kind of influence this season long view of things you know, so to me, like, I think there's kind of two questions in there. One is really, how do you deal with the kind of randomness luck factor elements of these things? And, and if there's more to tease out there. And the second part is, how about these outsized type results? And, you know, do we place too much emphasis on a, on a game that was probably decided after the 60th minute when it was, you know, 3-1, 4-1, rather than the final score of 6-1? Yeah, I mean, listeners will be happy to know. Jamin Moore, that uh, we do take into account um, to some degree, and some of it's a little bit uh, manual, but we do take into account like what do we think is sort of unsustainable luck. And we've made a few key decisions to try to make those things not have huge impacts on the players' uh, outputs or players' G plus values. For example, one of the things that people notice about our model pretty quickly without realizing why is the top goal scorer isn't always the top G plus, you know, guy or gal, right? And the reason for that is that we have chosen to not put a lot of emphasis on finishing because what we believe is that finishing itself is not the stable metric we want to measure, not the stable skill we want to measure. What we want to measure is which players are getting into dangerous positions and getting opportunities for their team. And so we put the emphasis on the receiving value rather than the finishing value. And I think what that does is it helps to spread out those very concentrated goal values into a wider range of opportunities, right? There's for every, you know, goal, there's some number of receptions that could have been a goal. And that helps us to spread that value out a little more fairly, for lack of a better word, maybe a little more sustainably. Another one is, you know, we know that when penalties occur or uh, are whistled like there's a lot of randomness in that right the referee at many of these penalties you watch we argue about them long enough that it's pretty clear that reasonable people can disagree about whether or not it was a penalty meaning that one referee might call it one referee might not maybe if you're home it's a 60 percent chance it gets called if you're on the road it's a 40 whatever it is right and and because of that, and that, in addition to sometimes the penalty itself is just stupid random, right? The ball hits your hand. I mean, sure, you maybe should have had it behind your back, but there's 20 more shots that happen that don't hit your hand when it's sitting right there. So what we do with penalties is we shrink the kind of either the cost to the defender who gave up the penalty or the gains to the attacking player who earned the penalty. We, we trim that. I think it's like it's something uh, maybe around a quarter of a goal 
well, even though a penalty is typically worth something more like three quarters of a goal. And again, to some degree, that's arbitrary. We did some research on figuring out sort of value of being in the box and things like that. But these are some very explicit ways we've gone about trying to control that randomness. If you're talking about, and the question from Kristen involved, like what about a bouncing ball where the defender maybe makes a crappy pass that shouldn't go through, but the defender trips over their shoelaces, it jumps over their foot, you know, whatever the, it happens. And all of a sudden it's the best through ball you've ever seen when it should have been intercepted. Yeah, we can't do anything about that. We don't have the uh, X, Y, Z location of every foot on the pitch, right? Even if we had tracking data, we wouldn't have that. So with that, that's what getting back to what Jamin, you were talking about. Big samples are going to help us there, um, but we might not you know, ever be able to get down to the such a granular level that we take game by game G plus values you know, at, at face value without some eyes on the pitch too. So just to follow up to that, obviously we can't control randomness, but um, to the conversation we've had previously, uh, I don't know, 20, 30 minutes now ago, we talked about uh, the size of that data. Um, how much does a bad play or randomness hurt a player's G plus score? It can for a while, right? If a player loses the ball, so that in the data that would show up as probably a, a, a ball loss or an unsuccessful dribble or something like that, what the model will see is it will see that the player had a was in a pretty neutral position defensively. Probably their team had a 1% chance of scoring, something like that, right? And then once they lost the ball and they turned it over right in front of the goal, the model's going to realize pretty quickly um, especially with the one-on-one flag I'm getting in there right now, Jamin. The model's going to realize pretty quickly that the attacking team has maybe a 50 or 40% chance of scoring right now because they're basically in front of the goal after a turnover. Well, that's going to cost that defender the delta there, right? That's how the model works. It sees that the possession value changed from plus 1% for team A to plus 40 or 50% for team B. That's going to cost the defender 40 or 50 points, right? 0.5 or 0.4 goals added. And, and that can be hard to recover from. The vast majority of players, I think the median goals added per season is something like, you know, one or two. Um, maybe if you filter to starters, it might be two or three. So if you're talking about one play costing you a half, that's, you know, that's could be anywhere from a quarter to a sixth of, of your total season value. Yeah, it take, it could take a whole season to recover from that and you still might not fully be recovered. So when we're thinking about what stability means with any metric in sports, a lot of these metrics probably you want to you'd like to have if possible multiple seasons, right? My guess is that some listeners may hear something like the median value of of, you know, two or three goals per season for a starter and go like, "Well, wait a second, you know, we got players that score, you know, 10, 15, 20 goals a year." You know, we're used to those kind of bigger numbers associated with players and, and kind of like taking their impact and to think like their actual contribution when divided over 11 players in a team and that team's total, you know, output for a season is actually a, a much smaller slice. I think it's sometimes, you know, when you control for position and, and, and the accessibility to opportunities and things that you were talking about, you know, sometimes can be kind of difficult uh, maybe for people to swallow. But you were mentioning something in that last part there where there's also kind of that downside component where players do make mistakes. You know, there's a certain percentage of passes which, you know, end up 
being uh, intercepted. There's a, a, a balls that you try to receive and you don't get cleanly. And now you've lost a one, a one-on-one situation or what some people call a duel or 50, 50 or whatever the case is. So, um, you know, there's a lot of those types of things where there's both kind of this positive and this negative and players are always in some ways in a race to see, you know, are their actions going to be positive or negative in a particular game and now played over the course of an entire season, those are typically very small numbers on a game by game basis. And so to move the needle, even, you know, a few goals, one direction or the, the other really does generally take, you know, a lot of actions to be able to do. Can you talk to a bit about, you know, kind of how all that comes in and, and how do you evaluate a player when the difference between players might seem so small? Well, I, I'll, do the easy answer part first, and I think the easy answer is that in many cases, maybe especially in MLS, the difference between players is small. <laughs> so like, I, to, to reject that right away as a possibility, I think, would be a little bit um, maybe not correct. In other words, they're at the level of MLS. That's why they're in MLS to begin with. If they were a better player, they would be in a higher league, and if they were a lower player, they'd be in a lower league. Is that a fair way of saying it? <laughs> Sure. Yeah. There are leagues above and leagues below MLS. It's positioned probably kind of close to the middle-ish, maybe middle-low tier of, of leagues around the world. Right. And so because of that, there's, I think probably there's some market rule here, right? There's got to be some parity in there. And so for one, I think you've got a lot of players that are close. And I think when you start, when you start allocating goals across more than just the person who scored them, one, I think you're more accurately reflecting the contribution of every player but two, you're actually creating a more stable measurement of their contribution, right? Um, you know, it, I think something like 30% of MLS players score 90% of the goal, something like that, right? But I don't think anyone would argue that 30% of, sorry, I said 30% of the minutes played, I think, or something like that contribute to 90% of the goals, right? But I don't think anyone would argue that you can win a game with 30% of 11, right? Three or four players. Like, so clearly we know that there's value being created from every position. Um, metrics like this are more stable than things like goals scored simply because they are reflecting that reality. Um, very few goals that you watch, would you really, I think, honestly say, oh, that was, you know, more than 50% or more than 75% one player who really contributed to that. That answer the question? So let's let's kind of transition this because we've talked a lot about. I'll take that as a yes. <laughs> yes, that answered the question. I, I, and we have more questions. So I was trying. I was trying to actually to set up uh, Harrison for for the for the lead in for the next question here. But I'll. <laughs> that's, it, that's it's, okay. all, it's all yours. We, we now. just want to make sure everyone is happy. Everyone has the answer. We want to try this to get is, everyone's answers to their questions. It's all. It's everybody's going to have an answer at the end of this podcast. If you're not, if you don't have an answer to your life's burning desire and questions related to G plus, Matthias will come to your house and personally answer all those and resolve any of those uh, issues. Uh, you, may need, so, you may need a specific player episode at some point though. Everyone just say about the player that you want to complain about and we'll just like go through them. Oh, everybody knows. I, I said Gustavo Bo just for funsies. Everybody knows where, where my, where my angst is driven and, and I'm trying to avoid it so that I don't have uh, the Timbers fan on the other side of this. That is also uh, coincidentally the, uh, the guy that's, you know, helping put together all the data 
uh, be angry with me. So that's we're, why I was gonna... playing up the Timbers win over RSL the other day. By the way, <laughs> I know uh, you were sucking up to him. I get it <laughs> just, a, just a little bit. Uh, can can we uh, can we talk about Kellen Acosta though? I'm just kidding. Go ahead. Well, we're joking a little bit about we're joking a little bit about like you know bring your player to the table. Why does G plus hate him? At the same time, a lot of we've had a lot of those conversations in our Slack channel, right? And they typically lead to a, a deeper understanding of the model, and they sometimes lead to changes in the model, right? Taking a player that that somebody or some people know really well and understand really well is a great use case for understanding what the model's thinking, why it's assigning value where it is. And then maybe where it's assigning value where it shouldn't be. And that's where we made changes. For instance, when we first looked at Nicolas Ladero, RIP, um, we, <laughs> we made changes to the model that, that, ref, that tried to kind of play up the attacking midfielder playmaker type because we realized, not because we were trying to cater to Nicolas Ladero, no way I would do that, right? But because we just recognized objectively and truthfully that, hey, um, when he does these types of things, the model might not be might not be giving him you know enough value. And I think that have, that originally led to our two possession versus one possession outlook, for example, is one major change we made early on. That was in part because we were noticing players like Ladero, who make a lot of risky passes with a lot of high reward, were just getting hammered on turnovers that wasn't, weren't particularly fair, right? And so I think we changed that um, that approach for that reason. Yeah, I think another thing that that it impacted was was the sliders. So, like, how do you say how much value do you give to a passer or how much value do you give to a receiver? And honestly, I feel like we beat ourselves up quite a bit over that type of question. And sometimes in a positional kind of way, like, well, if it's a forward, you know, we have to look at it in a different way than we, we do if it's a defender. Right. And in fact, we have a defender question. Let me try to set up Harrison one more time. We have a question from about from <laughs> someone about defenders. Uh, Harrison, yeah. what's that question that came in? Jeff Reuter. So appreciate Jeff and all that he does uh, supporting us and everything. He threw a question my way. Does G plus help begin to identify and value defenders and defensive midfielders uh, since data analysis of the back half of the field is usually so difficult? As the answer is for most of these questions, it's yes and no. I think what G plus does is it goes, it's a real good, and I shouldn't leave out other models, vape and and, and the 12 analytics model out there. um, These are all models are attempting to do this. And I think they're all doing a pretty good job, right? Um, The stats bomb model, so on and so forth. Um, But the point is, is that we are starting to spread that goal value out back down the pitch, back to those defenders. And I think where we're doing a good job is in defenders that give, like how defenders foul and how defenders pass are probably pretty well valued by the model. Um, how defenders defend outside of fouling, I think is, is probably a real weak spot, right? Because we know that so much of defending is off the ball. So much of defending is taking away space so that the thing can never happen in the first place so that you don't have to intercept the ball or make the tackle or, or whatever. Right. Um, so a lot of defending right now is credited to the actual defending part of defenders. It's credited to things like clearances, tackles, interceptions, um, which, uh, which are kind of masking the hidden side of the game, which is, are they taking up the right space are they preventing the pass from ever happening? Things like that. So the yes and no is yes, I think we're, we're starting to figure out good passing defenders, smart fouling defenders, 
but otherwise, I think we were missing a lot on positioning and other off the ball types of defender qualities. Can we talk a little bit more about defensive actions? Because you know, this is something that I think we say, and 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 you know, I think we we intend to to come across a certain way with it, and and it can be taken to an extreme. And at the same time, there's still a lot of truth in it. Um, and from a stats side of things, defensive actions are ones that you know people do cite from time to time. So a player on a particularly bad team, you know, may be doing a lot of clearances in front of the goal because the team is bad, and so their clearance numbers may be very good or very high as compared to the peers in in, in the position. But that's more of a function of that the rest of the team is allowing the the uh, opponents to get you know far enough forward that the clearance is necessary right. to begin with and i think that's what you're alluding to but when it comes to certain types of actions let's say a tackle or let's say an interception it does seem like there quite often at least is intentionality bes- uh, by those things so if i make a tackle or if i make an interception that's high up the pitch toward the attacking zone certainly that has the opportunity to turn into something really good from an attacking perspective, right? Because probably more because of its position. Certainly if it happens back in the box, it might be coming from emergency defending. Do you think that there, uh, one, that we as analysts might paint in some ways defensive actions with too broad a brush and we need more nuance in that type of conversation because of those different types of situations, number one. Number two, is there anything that goals added is doing right now that you think is adding some nuance to that type of conversation? And where is it you think doing well? And where is it potentially still have a blind spot? I think one thing, I like like this. The one thing that's doing well is, you know, we do take into account the location on the field. So the value of the interception, the value of the tackle um, does take into account where this, where this ball is. Right. And so if a, a player on the attacking side is, is sort of in a decent position, maybe 40 yards out, middle of the field, this team has a 3% chance of scoring, right? Something like that. Um, and you make a tackle there, all of a sudden the model knows that your team has the ball, it came off a turnover, and there's a possibility of a counterattack. So maybe it turns around and says, okay, your team now has a 2% chance of scoring. That might not sound a lot like a lot to the listener, but if you think about it, there's a hundred and some possessions every game and only about one and a half goals. So there's only about a 1% chance. Any single possession leads to a goal. If you're in your own half and you've got a two or 3% chance of scoring that says that possession is a fairly relatively valuable, valuable possession given the location of the field. Right. Anyway. So this player has just taken a 3% opportunity for the opposition, turned into a 2% opportunity for his team. He gets, you know, five points, you know, five percentage points of a goal for that. Um, because we take into account the location on the field and the, and the gameplay, I think G plus is doing a decent job of, of kind of um, taking the location of that in the context of that interception or whatever, and giving it some value, right? The flip side is exactly what you said though, is that the players who play on crappy teams have all the opportunities to do this. <laughs> they have just, I mean, so if we're not, if we can't discredit the defender for missing a tackle, because they were never in position to make it in the first place. They were just out of position and, and they let someone go between their lines. We don't discredit them for that. So essentially the worst, the worst teams, their defenders will have more opportunities to get value with fewer opportunities to lose it. 
And so that's where it becomes biased and unfair. Um, what I think, though, is interceptions and defensive actions at the team level can still be very valuable because when we see the patterns of how and where and how often teams do certain def- make certain defensive actions successfully or unsuccessfully, that can start to tell us what type of team they are and if they might not be getting a little bit lucky or unlucky defensively, for example. Is there something, and I know we, we kind of started down a path of exploring this, and I, I don't think we necessarily ended up with any clear-cut answers, um, but maybe there's still something more to do here. Is there something that we can infer potentially by a particular group of players playing together and actions occurring in part of a pitch, for instance? So let's say if it, if it happens in, in the defensive left side of the field, okay, well, over there, I probably have a left mid, I probably have a left back, I might have a defensive midfielder, I might have a center back. And the combination of knowing that these four players are likely to be in the vicinity and something good happens you know, to stop the ball defensively, should we assign some sort of collective thing to people based upon where we assume they would be in the pitch? And is this potentially a good use of where you could see tracking data in the future actually really informing the reality of, of defending objection, leading the witness. I was, I was just going to say, I think, <laughs> I think Jamin, Jamin's answer to his own question was perfect. Right. But like, yeah, I totally agree. I think we tried this, by the way, we, we tried figuring out roughly what zones certain players were quote unquote responsible for based on what zones they made the actions in throughout the game. Right. So we kind of, backcasted our understanding of where they were making actions during the game onto their defensive responsibilities on the field. And then we penalized them for the value that was earned by the other team in that space. So we were making them responsible for space. Um, I think that had, we certainly saw some issues with that. We kind of dropped the project, I think, before it was fully mature and ready to productionalize. But I think you're exactly right. I think that's a perfect example. Maybe the first thing we should do with tracking data is just to s- simply identify where players were when certain goals added were accrued by the other team and then make the players responsible based on some function of how close they were to the ball, how close they should have been to the ball, something like that. And I think that might even be the first place where tracking data can give us a, a better idea of which defenders are defending their space. Right. Wow. Uh, I think we solved soccer right there. It, it is solved. It's, uh, it's, oh, holy crap. There's so much more work to be done. Uh, <laughs> uh, next time we're going to have to uh, have uh, Tyler on as well. And uh, we are going to have to have a conversation of why, my, why G plus hates my player and, and not just necessarily to say uh, and, and ring hands and to say this model sucks. And, you know, why is this, but more to maybe dissect and have a better understanding because uh, I, I think that that's kind of maybe the problem here is I think it, we've done a really good job over the past seven years in trying to push expected goals forward. Uh, I'd like to see us kind of do a little bit better with pushing goals added and goals plus a little bit more forward and explaining how to use it, how to leverage it a little bit better. So uh, Matthias, you're you're not off the hook, buddy. <laughs> we are we are very good at creating models. We're not very good at marketing uh, what we did with them. Maybe, maybe that's a fair way <laughs> sure. to put it. Sure. Uh, but thank you guys both so much for, for joining me. Uh, I know both of you guys, uh, this is the end of your guys' uh, work day. It's, uh, Jamin's been on the phone for like uh, the last 20 hours. I know. Uh, so thank you very much. 
um, both for joining me. Ian, you were desperately missed. Uh, he had a he had a very snotty uh, question that I won't force you to answer. He just asked, "How the actual hell are Ola Kamara and Raul Ruiz Diaz the top two goal scorers in the league and negative on goals added? Uh, have you lost your damn minds?" Uh, so uh, he, he, wait, he, Ian, who? Who's this Ian? <laughs> Uh, the jokes that we can make when we're up here in the PNW and he's down there. So it's fine. Uh, but thank you guys so much. Uh, we'll try to do more going forward. Uh, until next time, uh, I'm Harrison Crow for American Soccer Analysis. Have a great night.